0: The following message is from Kings Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at KingsCrossManchester.com. We're going to start uh, the book of Luke this morning, um, and because of my cold, we're all going to enjoy this together as we work through this. I'm going to read the first few verses for us, and then we are going to get going here. So I'm going to read Luke one. Uh, we're going to preach through or talk through verse uh, 38, but I'm going to start us out with one to five, or one to four, I apologize. And um, as usual, as you have questions or if you have any questions or things you'd like to speak about further, the Q&A number is right there, it's at the bottom of the slides. We're going to start here, Luke 1, one to four. as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed along, followed all the, all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been Let's pray. Father, as we look at these words, consider the beginning of what doing. Consider all that you have accomplished among us through Jesus. I pray that we would experience dependence on you and experience dependence on you to inspire hope that you yourself care for us. So I pray that you would be among us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We are beginning what is called the season of Advent. Does anybody know the difference between Christmas and Advent? Oh, yeah. Peter? Do you you have to answer it out loud? Yeah. So Advent begins now until December 24th, and then December 25th to like January 12th, right? Am I remembering correctly? It's Christmas time. Aaron, am I right? Six, sorry. 12 days. I knew there was a reason for that song. (laughs) So we begin the season of Advent this morning, and as we're beginning the season of Advent, it is one of those words that sometimes we use, and it has like a religious tone to it, um, but it's one of those words that uh, implies something that I think is a bit interesting to consider. When you look up the word Advent and you consider, like, what does it mean? Like, it'll talk about, like, the beginning of something, right? Advent is the beginning of something new. But examples tend to be something like the advent of 24-hour news. You know, the beginning of when you could get news all, uh, at all times, at every day, 24-7. And something like the advent of smartphones. You could have all of the internet, the the world's entire archive of knowledge in your pocket at all times. And it's interesting to consider, um, nobody was actually looking for those things. Like they weren't just thinking like, man, you know what? I really want to be anxious all the time with all the bad things that are going on around the world. So I really, really, really want 24-hour news. Or I don't know about you, but I would love to have Elon Musk tell me what he thinks any moment of the day, along with... I don't know, Rage Against the Machine quotes and dad videos, cat videos specifically, all the time in my pocket. That's what I really want. When we use the word Advent, that kind of tends to be the way it's used in contemporary world. When we're using it here in the church context, Advent means something that we are knowingly anticipating, that we want to happen, that we have been told will happen, and will begin something new. So we just finished preaching through the book of Genesis, and if you remember, the book of Genesis is all built around this basic idea of who is Abraham's God and what is he like? So we finished off the series talking about basically Genesis as God's calling card saying, hello, I'm God, I've got you, and we filled in all of those colors and the lines to figure out who is this God and what is he like? Well, this God in Genesis, uh, when he makes a promise with Abraham, he says, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And basically he says, I'm going to use you to bless the entire world. But Genesis ends with them in slavery. And then if you have read any of the Old Testament, you know. Um, they do kind of get some of their land. But the blessing to the nations, God's purposes to bless the nations and make everybody happy in him, ends with a resounding silence at the end of the Old Testament. It's not accomplished. It's not finished. And so when we get to Advent, Christmas season, yes, it's wreaths and holly and mistletoes and Christmas trees. and. Well, <laughs> sorry, when my wife laughs at me, I just assumed that I've said something stupid. <laughs> Anyhow. It's all of the trappings of kind of the holiday, but specifically at the heart of what we're talking about when we say Advent, we are looking back at Genesis and saying, God, you promised, and when are you going to fulfill this? And Advent invites us into the season in the story of the Bible where God does that. And so we begin the Gospel of Luke this morning asking this basic question of what is Advent and how does it function in our lives? So, we're beginning the series of Luke, and we're beginning kind of this Advent season, and so as we begin kind of these opening chapters of Luke, what I'd like to do is just say, here's the main point of what we're talking about, and then kind of get get our handle around what Luke is doing in our lives, and then we're going to look at two characters, all right? We're going to look at two characters that help us understand what this whole, this, this opening chapter of Luke is doing. So, the purpose of what Luke is doing here in these opening verses is to help drive home this point for us. Hope lives in absolute dependence on God. Right, that's what we're getting into as we begin this uh, preaching through the gospel. of Luke. We've had this promise that God made for us. We're hoping for it to happen. And we're going to inter- introduce ourselves to two characters who relate to hope differently. And before we get to those characters, Zechariah and Mary, we want to just kind of talk a little bit about what is the purpose of Luke and the gospel? Like, how do they function in our lives? So we're going to look here at these first four verses. We're going to look at needing a perspective of hope. We need help kind of understanding what exactly is going on with Luke. And I just kind of want to ask a question, and feel free to interact with this. What, what is the purpose of a gospel? What does the gospel do? Anybody? Any takes on that? Like what is it when they, you have four of them, there's each of them have a different name, right, by the author, and they each are written to do something. How we interact with the Gospel of Luke is sometimes shaped about what we expect from, from it, or the Gospels in general. So I don't know if you've ever heard the story, but there's a story of a Buddhist monk being introduced to, the gospel accounts for the first time. And he read through the first, he read through the four gospels and his review was basically, um, it seems to me that these books are about how your savior was reincarnated four times and finally achieved enlightenment. Because if you read them one after the other, it's like, well, it's not obvious that they're all about one lifetime unless you go in with that assumption, right? (laughs) Like, We've all kind of, I think, have go into the four gospels and basically say, like, okay, here's one perspective on Jesus. Here's another perspective on what Jesus is doing. Same lifetime, but if you don't have that expectation, the gospels read like, well, same guy, four times, same friends, same basic story, and then you finally get it at the end. So, we go into the Gospel of Luke. We need to have somewhat of a understanding of what is going on here with the gospel account. So with that in mind, I want to introduce this category of a theological narrative, right? The Gospels are in themselves a theological narrative. They're telling a story about God, and they're highlighting aspects of God through a narrative of other people, with the primary character being Jesus. So isn't that pretty, I mean, that seems pretty clear, but we want to, we want to say this in a way that what is Luke specifically doing? Does anybody know how much of the Go- of the New Testament did Luke write? Luke wrote about 40% of the New Testament. So when we talk about the Gospel of Luke, we're talking about an author who wrote basically the majority of the New Testament. So when Luke talks about Jesus, here's a perspective on what he is focusing on. I want to put this, uh, can we put this quote up, just, by, just to, so that we have scholars who are saying things and not just Jacob's, Random ramblings from urban Manchester. This is Joel Green, and this is his kind of take on the Gospel of Luke. Luke is primarily focused on God and the fulfillment of God's ancient purpose. Remember how we talked about that from Genesis? So it can only, in a secondary sense, be classified as an account of the life of Jesus. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because here, Luke, as we get into this, we think this is all about Jesus. But let's go back and read through these first four verses of Luke, and you're going to see yes, it's about Jesus, but it's about a bigger picture that Jesus is in. Inasmuch as I have, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, accomplished by who? Right? Start asking questions. Who has accomplished these things among us? It doesn't say, actually. Who has accomplished these things among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So there's people who were eyewitnesses to these events. And that's why, for example, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see a lot of like basically addresses of where things happen. Names, addresses, dates, specific things to kind of say like, look, these are eyewitnesses accounts. But it's not just to kind of give like a factual report, like a history book. There's a purpose of what Luke is reporting to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed along things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Just so you understand, the reason he mentions Theophilus is because in the ancient world, um, it was expensive to write things, and so you had a patron who paid for things to get made. And so they were usually included in the artwork or named at the beginning. So. Theophilus, um, because he was basically rich, got his name put down in the Bible to write down the Gospel of Luke. I mean, a pretty sweet gig, you know, like you pay for somebody to write something. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So you were introduced to here, not just Jesus at face value, but Jesus is doing something in a bigger picture of God fulfilling his promises to us that then makes it not so much about god himself, about jesus himself but how god himself is telling us something through jesus i'm trying to think about how to kind of frame this for us because when we talk about for example movies we'll say you know this is directed by tim burton like wednesday the movie wednesday on netflix i haven't watched it yet but wednesday from the adams family but it's directed by tim burton right Do you get a sense of who the director is through every movie that you watch and the main characters in them? Like, does Wednesday reveal the life values of Tim Burton? Like, I guess. But not, like, overtly, right? And when you watch a movie, are you supposed to, like, intentionally put yourself into that story and relate to characters? Like, you know, are you, like... Do you relate to Hermione Granger when you watch... Lord of the Rings, in the sorry. Harry Potter, right? <laughs> when you watch those movies, or you watch any movie, are you supposed to, like, put yourself in those stories? Right? This is a very interesting story because it is about God. He's telling you a story of characters, and you're supposed to read that story to understand something about the director himself, and yet find yourself relating to characters in particular ways through the story. Like, that's a very unique sort of experience of a narrative. Okay, So, as we have been looking at this, here's what we're driving towards in this first chapter. I apologize if my, I'm like, where'd it go? Oh, like my, oh, there it is. (laughs) I apologize about my gold. Hold on. As we work through the Gospel of Luke, here at the beginning, we're introduced to this concept of hope through two characters, Zechariah and Mary. And the reason that we're introduced to this category of hope is because here in verse 37, at the beginning of Luke, we have Luke telling us this. Uh, Do we have that? There we go. Basically, what this is driving towards is that nothing will be impossible for God as the story is introducing us to this category. It seems that way, and it seems that is a main point for this, because up to this point, salvation, God doing something for other people to save them out of their, their darkness and despair, seems to have not happened yet. It seems to be impossible. And not only that, the circumstances of the people that he wants to do his, tell his story of salvation through have lives that seem to be impossible to fit into the narrative of what God's trying to do for us. Luke thirty seven invites us to consider... When God can do anything that he wants to accomplish the things that he's told us he's going to do for us, how does that stir hope in our lives? All right. First, we're going to look at the story of Zechariah. Of and we're going to see through the life of Zechariah, waiting for what God is going to accomplish with defeated hope or indefeated hope. You may call this cynicism. You might call this despair. But I think through Zechariah, there's some interesting dynamics that become very inviting for us to see that God is not off put by people who feel defeat in their lives. All right. I'm going to read verse 5 to 25. I'll do this best I can to not sniffle through the whole thing. And we're going to have a few observations about the life of Zechariah. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that Till the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were fulfilled, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and remained and remained mute. When his time of service had ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me, to take away my reproach among people. All right, so here you have a story of people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're advanced in years, which means they're way into retirement years. Zechariah is a priest. He's a professional pastor. He gets paid to go, and as a part of his work, he is selected to go into the temple. Before the Lord, now a few things to note about this first of all, um, they were they, the Bible says they were righteous before the Lord and obeyed all his commandments. That basically means that they had followed the law of the Lord and lived the good life, so to speak and because of that, you would have expected them to have had multiple children and yet they had no children and in that in that time, there would have been some sort of suspicion that like, what did they do that they did not have kids? I'm not saying that's the biblical per- perspective on their their experience of barrenness, but that would have been kind of the societal expectation of like, hmm, I wonder what's going on. They didn't have any kids. Is there something that is kind of amiss? So, go, so Zechariah goes. He's selected to go and serve in the temple, and he's selected to go into the Holy of Holies. Now, you have to understand, this is not like going to church on a Sunday morning. This is the way the church, the temple was set up. You had the outer courts the inner courts, the inside of the temple. And in the inside of the temple, there was a Holy of Holies. And you were only selected once in your entire life to go into the Holy of Holies. And you were so scared to go into the temple that should you go in and in some way not have fulfilled atonement to make atonement for your sin, just as like kind of like a backup clause, so to speak, they put a rope around your ankle so that if you died while you were presenting your sacrifice for the Lord, nobody else had to go in to take your body out. They could just kind of pull you out. <laughs> Sorry, just the thought of me getting up here on Sunday morning and being like, nobody comes on the stage. Let's just put a rope around Jacob's leg in case, you know, you find out whether God likes a sermon or not on the spot. And then you just kind of, you know, let's pull him out the back door and throw him in a dump out back, you know. It takes care of things pretty easily. So you have to, that's the pretext of of Zechariah going into the temple. He goes into the temple and the way it would have been set up, he would have had the Ark of the Covenant and he would have put the incense, which represented the prayers of the nations, prayers of the nation. So he would have been praying on behalf of the nation, Lord, forgive our sins, bless your people, remember us in your presence, that type of thing. Not his personal prayers. And so then Gabriel, an angel shows up on the spot You've been heard. The Lord is blessing you and will answer your prayers. Basically, God says, I'm going to answer your prayers for the salvation of Israel, and I'm going to do it through a miraculous son that your wife's going to have. Now, here's Zechariah. He knows how things work, and he's like, bro, we are way into retirement age. This is not likely to happen. Like, what is going on? So you have here what I've pulled out of the passage. Zechariah, he's here. He's here. I just think it's fascinating. You have an angel. Has anybody here had an angel show up, talk to you? I mean, honestly, if you did, I'd love to know. That'd be a pretty sweet thing to hear about. But here, Zechariah is standing before, in the most terrifying moment of his life. This is like, this is his TED Talk moment, right? This is the moment where he has center stage in front of the nation. Everybody knows his name. He's doing the one job that he is most prepared for, one time shot. He goes and stands before the Lord. Just to do this is already fear-inducing. And then you have an angel show up. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You shall have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Here's an angel who is telling Zechariah, your heart's desire will be fulfilled in the presence of the Lord. And Zechariah's response is his first words. How shall I know this? Basically, this sounds impossible. What do you think kind of all these factors going on? I mean, when you hear Zechariah read this, what do you think... Going on inside his head. How is he asking this question of Gabriel? Anybody? Do you think cynicism is going on here? How is this possible? Okay, like I know how this works, but for real, you're you're telling me that God's going to give us a child. We we can't have children anymore. God's going to give us a child in our old age. And not only that, he's going to, everybody's going to know about it and he's going to bless the nation. I wonder, has Zechariah's heart here, if he is going through the motions, but internally given up. I wonder if there's that type of thing going on him right here. You know, God, you, you care about everybody else, you care about us as a people, but you you don't seem to particularly care about me and my wife and our desires. So I think with Zechariah we have see someone who's gotten stuck with having a broken heart before the Lord. Somebody who's gotten stuck, given up hope, and yet they kinda are going through the motions. Psalm thirty eight through Psalm thirty four eighteen. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves the crushed in spirit. You see, God God does hear Zechariah. He does hear his yearning and longing. But you'll notice that God's correction to Zechariah's brokenheartedness is not to tell him just get over it. This 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 infliction of silence upon Zechariah is a certain sense. I want you to meditate upon the ways in which the Lord can miraculously provide for you, hear and provide salvation for you in ways that you had least expected or considered. See, this, the, the punishment of silence is less of kind of what, I think it has less punitive force to it and more of an invitation. Zechariah, this mystery of how God can do anything Despite your indifference to his provision, there's something profoundly real for you to consider in this world that you live in with God. It's a requirement for him to remain silent and ponder the mystery of what God is doing. All right. Are you guys tracking with me? And if you have questions, feel free to ask them with me. Because I, I want us to turn now to Mary. I'm not sure if you grew up in a tradition uh, church tradition where Mary was like highly revered or where she was kind of like cast aside. I'd like for us to have a healthy respect for Mary here because we have basically as we talked about last week, we have a not this but that sort of contrasting story we have God is not off put by Zachariah, but the example that we are called to consider or to live like is like Mary here. So waiting with mysterious hope is what we're going to be looking at here. And I just want to, as we set out and to read, I want to read through these verses here, as we consider this, the the, the contrasting dynamic here is fascinating, right? Here, consider everything we've just said about Zechariah. Everybody would have known his name. He would have had that one job that he had waited his entire life to perform, right? This was his TED Talk moment, right? He goes, not only that, it probably would have gotten sent around, Zechariah came out mute. He had, seen, he had some type of vision, right? So everybody would have known, bro, did you hear about what happened with Zechariah? Like, they didn't have Twitter back then, but I assume that they would have gotten around, right? Everybody would have known what was going on. He, was, he had all the privileges of religious experience and education to respond well and appropriately to seeing an angel from the presence of the Lord. And yet here we come to Mary And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, he will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign forever over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child who will be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the, si- and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible for God." And Mary said, "Behold, I am your servant, I am the servant of the lord let it be let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. <clears throat> See in here, we have this contrasting that goes on through the book of Luke, like if you remember so there's some famous parables in the Gospel of Luke, for example, in Luke fifteen Um, You have the priest who goes and prays before God and who is rejected, but you have the sinner who prays before God and who's accepted, right? You have the older brother in Luke 15 who's rejected. You have the younger brother who's accepted, right? You have these parallels all through the story. It's not the rich who get close to God. It's, in fact, the poor who get close to God. All through the gospel of Luke. So here we are introduced into the story with it's not the religious professional who gets close to God, who responds correctly to God. It is Mary, basically a common person who is responding correctly, or who is responding with the true faith that God is 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 responding to. You'll notice the differences have to be at a heart level between Mary and Zechariah, right? You'll notice and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Right? Basically, Mary's basically saying, like, look, I'm not married. There's no sex. So how am I going to have a child when none of that's going on? And it's not much different than Zechariah's response to, the, to Gabriel, right? Like, I know how this works. I'm not, we're not having any more kids. Where, how are you going to give us a child? At the heart level, there's something different with Mary. Right, there's something different going on in her response because it's not so much, I think we see in Zechariah, there's a questioning of God's possibility of doing this. Whereas I think in Mary, there's a more of a uh, functional, what's going to happen here? And here we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. You notice that the Holy Spirit is promised to John. You have the Holy Spirit who's the the functional way in which uh, Luke, (coughs) <coughs> says that Mary will conceive. you notice the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the, whole, whole, of the Most High will overshadow you. Right? Some translations say that he broods over you. Right? This is an allusion to the Holy, to the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 that broods over the waters and brings forth the new the creation. Here, a new thing is starting in Mary. So, in the midst of all of this, what do you think is going through Mary's mind as she's hearing this? What sort of frame of mind do you think is going through her head as she is being told, you're going to bear the Son of God? I mean, quite literally said, you're going to bear the Son of God. Yeah, I mean, it's on the one hand you have to consider, like, God's promising this child. It's like the realization, like back in 2 Samuel 7, God has said to David, I'm gonna make your son have a kingdom forever, which we don't see happen in the Old Testament. And yet God's showing up and saying, I'm gonna give that to you. I'm gonna give that to your son that I'm gonna that you're gonna have. So there's all these ways in which certainly faith is built up, but then it's overwhelming. Oh my gosh, like uh, she's betrothed, so she has some stability, but she's not locked in on that marriage. So in the sense of like betrothal then would have basically been like a marriage, but it wasn't finalized yet. So her stability in terms of the culture, the world around her, she perceptions would have been she had violated the law. And so it's funny. is said to have been blameless before the Lord, yet God's gift to Mary implies a certain violation of the law. So then, she would have lost stability. I mean, we have in, in the Matthew's account that Joseph thinks about divorcing her. All of this, God is asking of her in this moment, where it's like basically, I want you to put your entire life on the line to depend on me. That I'm going to carry you through this, and I'm providing for you in a uniquely miraculous way. I think that's that's the that's the mystery of what we're invited into through the example of Mary, because none of it makes sense. God is saying, I want to provide for you, and I'm going to do it in a way that you can't control, that's outside of your ability to manage. That seems to be something we come back back to through all these stories, that we want to try to manage the way God provides for us and fulfills his promises to us. And yet in every story along the way, we are forced with this reality. You cannot manage the way God will provide for you. You cannot manage the way in which God fulfills his promises. See, Mary invites us into this reality when she says, I am your servant. Let it be with me as you have said. There is a mystery here. You might call it a leap of faith where she takes God at his word. And leaps over in the midst of all of these things, the insecurities, into a mystery of things. mystery must always reside in us, or be ble- bleached out by the cares of the life of our lives as adults. Right? We will sometimes kind of cynically, oh, childlike wonder about Christmas morning and this mystery of you know like kids like think about like what we're doing here as we. Repair. If you have kids, I, I can't help but live in a world of small children all the time, where there is an anticipation of Christmas morning, and we kind of think like, "Oh, like wouldn't it be nice to be a kid again and have that?" Well, maybe we should. Maybe we should consider that there is something in the way children look towards that Christmas experience of, "I can't wait for what." I don't know. It's going to be great. Why do you think it's going to be great? I don't know. It's just going to be awesome. Like that sort of place of wonder for children. That is the, the, the mystery of faith of, I don't understand this world around me. And I don't understand why it is the way it is. I don't understand why it has to be this way, God. And yet you've promised to fulfill your promises for me. You've put your name on the line. And so Advent is an invitation to wait upon this God to do exactly what he says he's going to do in his own time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this to say. Thus Advent can be celebrated only by those whose souls give them no peace, who know that they are poor and incomplete, and who sense something of the greatness that is supposed to come, before which they can only bow and humble timidity waiting until he inclines himself towards us the holy one himself god and the child in the manger god is coming the lord jesus is coming christmas is coming so as we wait i don't know what as we end i just want to close with this thought and we can turn to questions i don't know what waiting looks like for you right now maybe you're waiting to experience a fresh relationship with the Lord. Maybe you're waiting for the Lord to provide some particular way of growth or change or relief in your life. Maybe you're waiting for the Lord to provide some sense of light in your sense of despair. Maybe you're waiting for the Lord to move you forward in life because you just can't stand being stuck where you are. I don't know what your advent is. But if the story tells us anything, it's not that God is bound to answer your, prom- your, your prayers and whatever you hope them to happen. But it's that God loves to answer his promises in a way that, frankly, seems impossible. God loves to show up and fulfill his promises for us. Not so much that we get the whatever the thing is, but so that we get God himself in a unique, fresh, intimate way for us. So as we begin this Advent series, we are invited in this story to consider that hope lives only through absolute dependence on God himself. Let's pray. God, as we have considered this story and what you're beginning to show us in the Gospel of Luke, through this life of Jesus, through these characters of Zechariah and Mary. Would you stir hope in us again? That you see us, you care for us, that you, in your own way, will provide for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission.